September 19, 1964, Neyland Stadium. Doug Dickey arrives for his first day as a head football coach at 9.13 a.m. He was carrying two coats on hangers, a hedge against the threatening rain. Groundskeeper Jim Wagner met him at the door. Want to take the cover off, he asked. Wait a second, Jim. Let me make a call. Dickey called the airport, received an optimistic report, and he hung up. Yeah, Jim, take it off. At 9.30, Dickey walked west from his office under the stadium stands to the athletic dorm. There, 48 balls began arriving for Mr. Jim Thompson's pregame meal. Dickey walked among them to see if they were all there. The players stood with Dickey while tailback Jack Patterson said a prayer. The balls ate cereal, scrambled eggs, 14-ounce steaks, and tea. Dickie and Charlie Rash split a sirloin. The room was quiet, minimal conversation among players, and almost no exchange among coaches. After breakfast, Dickie took the balls on a stroll to Hudson Field, where he talked briefly and earnestly to the players in a low voice. Then they walked down the steep steps and over to McClung Museum for a 45-minute meeting. Dickey showed a Chattanooga film and reviewed assignments. All then went to East Stadium for group sessions and more reviews. Dickey then doubled back to the athletic office for a few minutes of quiet. At 12.13, he left for the East Stadium again, where the players were taped and dressed and waiting silently. Kickoff was imminent, as was a new era of Tennessee football. From VFL Films and the Vol Network, I'm Ben Bates. And I'm Barry Rice. And this is A Host of Volunteers. Welcome to the show. Good well, to see you. Hello, Ben. It's been too long. It has been. And to the listeners, welcome to our podcast. Uh, I guess you guys have spoken and we've heard you. That's Thank why you. there's a season two beginning right now. As collectively, Tennessee fans say, Woo! And, and go ahead. If you're new, I mean, maybe, maybe the word of mouth has gotten out and there are some new folks to the show. Just to tell them what it is. Uh, it's about uh, this archive that we sit amongst as we speak. We're recording in the Vol Network archive, and we really want to highlight and spotlight the archive, and that's why we're here. Yep, you can smell the cassette tapes in here. It's a beautiful smell. <laughs> I love. I actually do love the smell of the film ball. Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. Long for the end zone, man. There in the end zone, touchdown, Tennessee. This now sometimes Tennessee we don't even have to dig football. too deep for that history. One hundred years ago, Tennessee students cleared a track of land just down the hill um, from the uh, campus. They lined it off so the Tennessee football team could play a game. The Volunteers beat Emory and Henry 27 to nothing on September 21st, 1921. Tennessee's been playing on the same track ever since. Tonight, celebrating the 100th anniversary of Shields Watkins Field in Neyland Stadium. Tonight is also the debut of Coach Josh Heupel. He brings a history of generating high-scoring big plays on offense. 
In fact, that clip was obviously a beautiful description by our very own Bob Kessling of the start of the Josh Heupel era, his very first game. It turned out to be the sort of night fans will always remember. The weather was perfect. The fans had showed up in force, especially the students. It was a night game. Just truly a perfect way for the Josh Heupel era to begin. It got us to thinking, uh, I wonder what the archive might tell us about what it was like when other notable coaches kicked off their eras of Tennessee football. And I don't know, maybe it'd be fun to celebrate uh, the new era, but also look back while we do it. And remember the first games of Doug Dickey, Bill Battle, Johnny Majors, Philip Fulmer. Let's go. Let's do it. Ben, we we opened the show quoting a 1964 column from New Sentinel Sports Editor Tom Seiler. He described Doug Dickey's very first pregame as a volunteer coach. That item began with a quip, you only get married the first time once. And so it was with 32-year-old Doug Dickey when he sent out his first team to play for the first time in his first year as a head football coach. As Seiler put it, his chosen career in a most hazardous profession. Dickey's was the first tenure in what's considered the modern era of Tennessee football, and it all began in 1964. The 1964 University of Tennessee Volunteers could be called the New Look Vols, because for the first time, Tennessee will not be using their famous single-wing offense this year. The Vols will go to the T formation, directed by their youthful new head coach, Doug Dickey, shown talking with UT Athletics Director Bob Woodruff, who was Dickey's coach at Florida, where the new ball mentor was a quarterback. Dickey has been a chief lieutenant to Frank Broyles at Arkansas before becoming head man of the Volunteers. Now, before we get to the first game of the Dickey era, let's talk about all the other firsts on that day. Ben, many fans wondered why the Vols occupied the west sideline. Instead of the east sideline, as it had been done, well, since the first games on Shields Watkins Field back in 1921, Tennessee always took the east side. And the answer is simple and logical. Doug Dickey thought having the sun in his eyes and in his team's eyes was a disadvantage. No so question. he opted for standing on the west side facing east. This was the first game where that happened. No kidding. Yeah, pretty cool. There were some other changes noted on this day. One, there was a brand new mascot, Smokey 3, took over on this day for the recently retired Smokey 2. Another change, for the first time ever, the Tennessee walking horse pranced around the field. Now, Ben, hold on. There is a discrepancy to report. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, For the record, Doug Dickey told us on camera on two different occasions that the first time the walking horse appeared was at LSU a few weeks later. And uh, the reason for it, uh, as far as his recollection was concerned, was that there was a game scheduled for television, which was rare back then, at LSU, and Mike the Tiger was quite the star. And Doug Dickey wanted to compete with that wow factor, as he called it. So they thought, let's get a horse, because all we got is that old dog. But thank you, Uncle Doug. Yes. According to newspaper accounts from this first game, five weeks prior to the LSU game, the horse was already on duty. So which do you think is the first time? Uh, Having worked for Doug Dickey for a number of years, I know 
do not go against Doug Dickey. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> now, also, for the first time ever, there was a prayer recited over the PA prior to kickoff. And finally, the marking of the playing field changed beginning on this day as well. Each of the 100 yards was marked. Previous to this day in 1964, the field was only marked every five yards. Now, we know there are some other major traditions associated with Doug Dickey, but those would have to wait. Running through the tee begins in his second season, the 1965 opener against Army. And the checkerboards are not painted in the end zone until the next home game of 1964 against Boston College. Ben, notably, uh, I would like to point out, the very next game, Doug Dickey's second game, was played against Auburn in Birmingham. Those end zones were painted in a checkerboard pattern, of course, only with white and the green grass. So it wasn't a colorful checkerboard, but there was a checkerboard pattern. Maybe he was inspired. Who knows? I choose to believe he was not inspired by Auburn and he did his own thing. (laughs) (laughs) But here's what he had to say about color and marketing in general. The the color thing became started happening. We had been red and white at Arkansas, where I came from, and I saw a lot more of that when I got to Tennessee. And you see a lot of orange and white. It wasn't as dominant a thing, but but the manufacturing process in the '60s maybe got along. I don't when Nike came along and all of that sort of business, but it got to where clothing changed and people became. uh, more relaxed in their gear and more informal. People used to go to a game in a coat and tie and the ladies had heels and all that. All, and it changed. And we started tailgating more than we used to. And so the whole atmosphere surrounding college football, I suppose television, probably did that more than anything. Television showed what other people were doing everywhere, so all of a sudden it ignited around and everybody got to see what everybody else was doing and so anybody was doing anything chick as such you know then it took off at your place and so uh the the uh, information era hit with television and so i think that helped color up things a little bit differently one is quite nobody wanted to be black and white blah when you get color tv you want to look good and on the stands and the place and so uh, we, we began to decorate up a little better and uh, the checkerboard and all of the things that went with the T on the hat and all of that became part of decorating us up a little bit better and making us a little more splashy. And we needed to recruit to a little more splashy atmosphere than we were trying to recruit to. So uh, it changed, the, the, the whole game was changing in all over the country. And we were just part of that change and we were part of the next upbeat generation of Tennessee football. On this day, 28,000 fans welcomed Doug Dickey to his first day at the office and to see Tennessee face off against the Chattanooga Mocs. This day represents a tectonic shift of sorts. There's a reason we refer to everything from this day forward as Tennessee's modern era. This was the moment Tennessee officially switched to the T formation on offense. The single wing was a relic of the past. It was a glorious past for sure. But if Tennessee hoped to keep up, compete, and win, it would have to say goodbye to the general's offense. And it was not so much because it was a better formation. There was really a more practical reason, according to Doug Dickey. Because nobody else was running a single wing anymore. You couldn't recruit. You know, nobody knew what they were going to play. You know, it didn't relate to them in high school anymore. So uh, uh, we had to recruit 
to, to an offense that people could relate to where they'd come from in some way, or they looked at it and they could recognize it anyway where they might play. And so uh, it, it, it immediately, uh, the ironic thing about it is that the first quarterback we had was a single wing tailback in high school. You know, well, a few people still running the single wing. And he had run in Charlie Fulton, who became a very dominant player for us throughout the next four years. Uh, but he was a high school tailback and would have been a great single wing tailback for Tennessee. But uh, we went to the T formation and I felt like we had to in order to recruit better. Now, if those 28,000 beautiful Vol fans showed up thinking this new offense was going to be high powered and high scoring because that's what they were told, well, they <laughs> were told wrong. <laughs> Only one touchdown was scored that day. Now, there's a reason for the low-scoring games, though, according to this Bill Anderson interview from the 1990s. We put all of When Coach Dickey there, I, it happened to be a year that I uh, helped over there in 64. Uh, and when he came here, we didn't have that many athletes. So the decision was made, and very wisely, I think, that we put most of the athletes on defense, tried to play the kicking game, play defense, and try to keep from getting beat too badly. So... Uh, for those of us trying to coach the offensive side of it, it was <laughs> it was just uh, trying to put in a, flip, a trick play, do whatever you could. We couldn't line up and run it, run over anybody. So we had to try to throw the ball and and do some things to get a few points on the board and hope that we could hold on defensively. You know, and sounds like the new Sentinel expected more from the T formation too. The headline on Sunday was quote. Defenders pull orange through as new T attack fails to click. Eesh. It went on to say a hopeful, friendly gathering applauded each of the six Tennessee first downs. That's been the entire game, six first downs. So Gosh. they really whooped it up when Hal Wantlin rammed over for the one and only touchdown. Can you imagine? Actually, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Now, you may be wondering why we are only describing this and not playing the radio call from this day. Mm -hmm. Well, darn. <laughs> the archive does not have a recording from that first game. In fact, there are no radio recordings from that entire first season. But just to get a flavor of a George Mooney broadcast, we give you the earliest known call of a Doug Dickey era touchdown and it comes from the first game of 1965 against Army. The ball is snapped to him, and penalty flag down. It's a low booming kick that Jerry Smith takes at his own 35. Back up field of the 40, heads for the far sideline. A good block for him to the 45, the midfield. Down to the 45, down to the 35, to the 30. Another block, play. Down to the 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, but there's a flag down. Hold everything. There's a flag down, so hold everything. Jerry Smith returned it. A Fisher made a magnificent block. It was, and if it's allowed, it will be a 65-yard punt return. Illegal procedure against Army declined by Tennessee. It's touchdown for Tennessee. George, that was tremendous run. His uh, blocker. Uh, of course, we got to hear from the cannon too. But and by the way. Listen closely to the voice on the PA system in the background on this same day against Army. You may recognize the voice. It's John Ward. Ben, one more oddity of college football that Coach Dickey told us about. And I never heard of this, but apparently 
he was forced to deal with some pretty crazy ideas from the rules committee. Yeah, well, the rules were such, I think, that the defense had to play maybe one down of offense before he could get off the field. I forget how all those rules were in that first year or two. There was a weird bunch of rules. On who I had just come from, a, a, from we had a three-team system even, and then that changed a little bit to where you could only go in the game once a quarter and come out, all that kind of stuff, or twice a quarter or something, and then it was crazy. And so uh, this, this, this particular year, 64, I remember the defensive team had to play one down of offense, I think, before they could come off or something. It was crazy. And uh, the offense had to play one down of defense or something. That was a crazy rule. Six years later, it was time for another new era. Tennessee football, the Bill Battle Show, with Tennessee coach Bill Battle and John Ward, presented by... Doug Dickey left Tennessee to coach at his alma mater, Florida. Gosh, Ben, I, I wonder if Doug Dickey ever regretted this decision. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Barry, because... <laughs> I got introduced to Doug Dickey. I've met him before, but Steve Early, my boss, uh, formally introduced me to him in a suite at one of the games in 2016, I believe. And I told Steve going into this meeting, I'm going to ask him if he regrets leaving to go to Florida. And Steve was like, you just go right ahead. Tell me how that, tell me how that works out for you. So sure enough, we go into the suite. Steve marches me up to Coach Dickey and says, I'd like to introduce you to, the, to, to Ben Bates. And I was like, oh, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And then I start in on my presentation of the question, and Steve bolts. He is gone. He had no desire to be around. And I asked him, I was like, I was very soft about it. I just said, do you, you were doing so great and you built this thing up and Ward just always gloats about how you really had this thing rolling. Do you ever think, man, what if I'd stayed? And to his credit, he said, well, you make the best decisions you can. And I'll just say that thankfully I got to come back. <laughs> and I thought that was, I thought that was a very classy way of saying, Maybe I did. Yeah. Maybe I should have stayed, but thank goodness I got to come back and do some pretty special things. Well, props to you for. Uh... Hey, no shame. <laughs> no shame whatsoever. No shame. Ben, as you know, Bill Battle was an assistant on Doug Dickey's staff. He had arrived in 1966 to coach the wide receivers, and he was promoted to the top spot by athletic director Bob Woodruff. Interestingly, Battle was not the offensive coordinator. That's the sort of experience normally required before making a jump to a head coach. But obviously, Bob Woodruff was a decisive man, and he saw something he liked in his wide receiver coach. I'll say so. Now, Coach Battle inherited a team that was a consensus choice to finish sixth out of 10 in the SEC. But the 28-year-old rookie bucked the odds. And as it turned out, a lot of things fit together great with new coaches and a new system and some new players and our defense, which we thought was going to be the weakness of the team, ended up being the strength of the team. Uh, we ended up, we started the season against Hayden Fry and SMU. They had a very sophisticated passing game and offense, and our defense really won the game, and our defense was responsible for us having a great year. Larry Jones was the defensive coordinator, and uh, so we, uh, we got better as we went on. 
It was September 19, 1970. Ben, it should be noted that Bill Battle was the first coach to debut his era on artificial turf. And this time of year, as noted by the Sentinel, that's not a great thing. Quote, Tennessee opened the 1970 football season with a 28-3 victory over Southern Methodist. Fans used almost anything they could get their hands on. Souvenir programs, hats, plastic seat cushions, anything to use as a fan to create a breeze. But Ben, while the 87-degree temperature was uncomfortable for the 54,000-plus in the stands, it was even worse on the playing field. The temperature on the surface of this tartan turf was measured at 115 degrees. That sounds miserable. Uh, Yes. Now, also, notice the attendance. Demand is up, Mm -hmm. and Gus is happy. Yep. Twice as many people in the stadium on this day than just six years previous. Pretty cool. Also, those fans ignored, some of those fans, I should say. Let's don't blame everyone. No. Some of those fans ignored UT's ban on radios, and they brought them anyway. One man grumbled as he was forced to turn down his transistor radio. He said, quote, people are here to watch football, and this radio helps us keep up with it. Yes, sir. (laughs) Big fans of radio here. Here's the write-up from that day. Quote, the Vols stopped the running game cold in a victory over the Southwest Conference visitors. The Mustangs wound up with a net loss of 12 yards. In that game, playing against Chuck Hickson, one of the nation's great passers, the Vols established a pattern for the season in making timely interceptions. The alert Tennessee secondary presented a formidable defense against the passing game throughout the season. Tennessee's offense, netting 358 yards, struck a desired balance in garnering 208 yards on the ground and 140 through the air. Wingback Lester McLean provided the game's premier crowd-pleasing spectacular, scooping up a fumble and rambling 39 yards for a touchdown. Here we see alertness payoff as McLean scoops up a loose ball and races 40 yards for a touchdown. Asked a reporter after the game, what do you call that fumble play, Lester? I call it luck, said Lester, (laughs) beaming with a smile. Get that man a statue immediately. (laughs) We must do that. Again, this is Kurt Watson. Over the right side of the line. Running back Kurt Watson added two touchdowns. Here's the Crossville Jr. spinning off that first tackle. Kurt Watson behind the blocking of Kell and Robinson into the end zone for a Tennessee touchdown. Quarterback Bobby Scott was 9 of 12 for 127 yards and one TD. It was Bobby Scott at quarterback. Playing in the shadows of more publicized quarterbacks in the SEC who provided outstanding leadership for the ball. Scott made few mistakes in running Tennessee's triple option offense as he ran with authority. Now, to quote Tom Seiler again, after the game, Bill Battle, still looking quite neat in his white shirt and tie, walked the noisy, garment-strewn rectangle that is the locker room under the East Stands. He shook the hand of every sweat-strained volunteer, no ceremony to it, nothing boisterous, no gloating, That look in the eye, the kind word, the warm slap, a coach's way of saying, you did a great job. This was a rare moment, 
a 28-year-old head coach, youngest in big-time football, on a day that was never to be forgotten by him. The Dickey era was six years, the battle era, seven. That brings us to 1977 and the Majors era. From Neyland Stadium on the campus of the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, this is John Wood with Bill Anderson sending you the play-by-play as we're just about set to kick off football 1977. I have to note here, Ben, what our good friend Bud Ford told us to consider in this episode. The idea of announcing these new eras starts to evolve here. In Bud's various roles with the Sports Information Department, he was witness to the arrival of Dickey, Battle, Majors, and Fulmer. We're talking about 40 years of coaching eras. I can remember Johnny Majors' press conference when he first came. And we had a room in the bottom of Stokely Center that was a kind of a combination weight room, and also it was a combination of where we stored all our film. Mm-hmm. And we held that particular press conference down there. Now, that to me was the first big coaches coming on board press conference. Mm-hmm. Well publicized, a large, a large crowd there. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, I was a gatekeeper. And, you know, <laughs> the gatekeeper's not somebody that you usually like. But I was the gatekeeper, and I was uh, to, to allow the media to come in because we probably had 100 seats in there, maybe 125. But I recall that as being a really big press conference, one that I remember I could vividly see the setup that we did for that. The Majors era began on September the 10th in Neyland Stadium against the Golden Bears of California. And any time a sporting event begins, we hear the national anthem. Why not hear it again from the best to ever sing it? Anthem, as sung by George Beatsis. Yeah, Ben, that's pretty good. George Beatsis sang the anthem before every home game, beginning in 1971, and he did it as good as anyone's ever done it, all the way through 1999. He was amazing. Amazing. He he really was the best. And here comes the big arm through the tee for the opening game of the 1977 campaign. But on this night in 1977, Welcome home Johnny signs ringed the inside of the stadium. A new coach was not the only change that greeted the fans. There'd been some changes in the team uniforms, mainly in the size of the jersey numbers and of the orange tee on the side of the helmets. Speaking of fashion, there was a new feature on the Vol Network radio broadcast. From WATE-TV in Knoxville, a new voice on the Vol Network, the lovely Margie Eisen. The fashion trend for the first game indicates lightweight clothing. I've noticed many ladies wearing the traditional orange and white colors. Among the fashions, pantsuits, gauchos, and boots seem to be favored, and we've even noticed a few blue jeans. Skies appear to be 
Ben, if you were from Knoxville or lived in, in Knoxville in that era, you knew the promo tag that ran a thousand times a day, and it was, Margie said it would. <laughs> now, what she didn't say or predict was an incident involving the beloved walking horse. It was still a weekly tradition, even with the tartan turf. Although, maybe not for long. Well, of course, the Tennessee walking horse is on the field just down below, and there was a first because the horse, as it circled in the north end zone, fell. I hope, and I'm sure, the horse is all right because up again will be the rider who is Bill Mullins of the Mullins Construction Company in Knoxville presenting Sundust Superstar, Sundust Superstar, the Tennessee walking horse, a beautiful eight-year-old black mare, third in the amateur mare class at the national celebration held in lovely Shelbyville, Tennessee, of course, earlier this year. So, there... Ben, you don't get these kind of reports in the newspaper anymore, and I guess you don't get a newspaper anymore, but shall we say, even in the digital editions, you don't get a report like this. Quote, One woman was treated at a first aid station for minor cuts and bruises after two men who were fighting behind her fell on top of her. And a young Chattanooga woman was stung on her behind when she sat on a bee. (laughs) Now, speaking of buzz, (laughs) there was plenty to look forward to in this game. So it sets it again. A new era in Tennessee football. Johnny Majors, head football coach at the University of Tennessee. Now California has it at the one and one half yard line going south trying to score. They come out with a split back situation. Tennessee stacks it in the middle. They gave us the Hillman diamond. No, sir. He did not score. Tennessee's goal line defense has held, and it was Kurt Chicken of Elizabeth and Tennessee who makes the stop. Tennessee holds California at the one-yard line. Great goal line stand, Tom. That should give that defensive unit a little confidence now. That's beautiful. Tennessee Streeter against a four-man front. Running backs are split. Long count. Streeter keeps upfield. 25. Great. There it is. 30. Turns on the gas. 35. There it 40. Is. Streeter 45. Get the ball. Streeter 50. Cut back. There it is. They make it all the way. 45. 40. 45. 40. 25. 20. 15. 10. 5. Give him 6. Touchdown, Tennessee. Get he played. <laughs> what a run that was, John. He got some good luck and he picked it up down the field, but he was. Broke that line of scrimmage. He broke a tackle there. He pulled away from one fella, and then the arch wave started picking him up, and he was home sailing all the way. From Silva, North Carolina, Jimmy Streeter goes 80 yards on a scrambling dash, and Tennessee leads California 6-3. Now into the ball game for the balls. From Nashboro, Tennessee, comes Jimmy Gaylor to attempt the extra point, and holding will be Billy Arbo. The score is 6-3 with 8-11 to go in the first half, waiting for the snap. There it is. High step. Kick by Gaylor is in the air. The kick is good. There's Simon on the field with the score. Tennessee 7, California 3. The run by Streeter ranks 6th in length, tying him with John Majors, who ran 80 yards against Mississippi State as a sophomore in 1954. Here's California, 1st and 10, trailing 7-3. to three. Back to throw is young. Get some pressure. Long pass. Hey, intercept. Could be picked off. Is Barksdale. Barksdale intercepts for Tennessee at the 33-yard line of the Volunteers. Bill? Don, what did that is a good pressure. Tennessee's been putting a lot of pressure on the passer back there. He had he was under heat that time. He tried to get rid of it and lay it out there. It really was not a good throw. He laid it up in the air too much. Tennessee was able to pick it off. Big break. Val Barksdale, a freshman from Harriman, Tennessee. Now, Johnny Majors didn't say, I told you so, but he could have. 
clearly outmanned up front, just as the coach had forecast, Tennessee lost to California 27-17. But Tennessee fought, scratched, and played with pride. To give an idea of just how big it was to have Johnny come marching home in 1977, here's a quote from Cal fullback Paul Jones. We beat Johnny Majors and that's great, said Jones. He's number one, the top coach in college football. We knocked off the number one man. Everybody knows Johnny Majors and they know he's at Tennessee. Here's a clip, Ben, of Coach Majors after the loss and and listen to him call out the Tennessee fans and thank them for their support. Uh, It's not the first game I've lost. I'm not proud of it, uh, but I think we'll be proud of some effort we showed. And if we just keep uh, working together, we plan to keep getting better regardless of what the score is and how many games we win or lose. But we're certainly not going to try to, to let up or go downhill if we possibly can. There were 84,421 fans, a new record not just for Tennessee, the most ever to see a college game on a college campus in the South. I think that's a great tribute to Tennessee fans. And several times tonight, I know our football team uh, responded to their support, particularly on the fourth down and one at the goal line. Some other times when they uh, uh, came out with a big roar, we're going to need that crowd support week after week because Tennessee will not win without consistent support. Coach Johnny Majors from the dressing room as you're listening to the Johnny Majors Show on the Vol Network. Also, it is with great pride that we note that the first African-American assistant coach in the SEC was a Tennessee coach. His name was Fred Malone, and he was on Bill Battle's staff in 75 and 76. Let me interrupt just briefly to say his story will be part of a future podcast, Ben. Beautiful. We'll look forward to that. But he figured into this story because upon leaving Tennessee after the battle era, he landed at California. (laughs) According to head coach Mike White, Fred was the edge for us. He knew Tennessee's personnel. He told us Jimmy Noonan was great and wouldn't quit. And he was right. After the game, the Golden Bears gave Fred Malone a victory ride, and he loved it. Good for Coach Malone. Good for Coach Malone. Congratulations. (laughs) 16 years. That's how long the Majors era lasted. It was a good run for sure, but all good things must come to an end. And sometimes they lead to more good things, like the Philip Fulmer era. It's kind of tricky to feature Philip Fulmer's first game. We could say his first game was the first game he served as interim coach while Coach Majors recovered from heart surgery. That was September the 5th, 1992 against Southwest Louisiana. Wide outs, right, one left, trailing 3-0. Schuler back to throw, looking into the end zone, pass downfield, give it to him. Touchdown, Corey Fleming! But that wasn't officially his first game. Coach Fulmer's first full season was 1993, and the first game that season was Louisiana Tech on September the 4th. Schuler with time, pass downfield, complete, Faulkner makes the catch at the 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5. Give it to him. Touchdown, Tennessee! That wasn't his first game either. His first game officially was on January the 1st, 1993. Welcome to Tampa, Florida for the opening game of an eight-game New Year's Day as Boston College plays Tennessee in the Hall of Fame Bowl. Tampa Stadium was dedicated in 1967 when Tennessee played in the dedicatory game, winning over Tampa by a score of 38 to nothing. Tennessee is 
3-0 this year. The first three victories coming under then interim, now head coach Philip Fulmer, as this will be Coach Fulmer's first game as head coach after succeeding Johnny Majors. The final count was 38-23, to and it could have been much worse. So dominant was 17th-ranked Tennessee in the second half that Coach Philip Fulmer called off the dogs early in the fourth quarter. But long before showing Boston College such mercy, there was an opening play bomb. Tennessee first down, the offense out for the first uh, series, and it will be Schuler at quarterback. Schuler fakes the gift to Garner, is going to look deep, long pass down into the end zone. It's complete, complete. Ronald Davis high into the air, pulls it down over his shoulder, and crashes down at the one-yard strike. Outstanding catch. Quarterback is Schuler. He could sneak. He's going to keep. He's going to score. Touchdown, Heath Schuler. And then a 14 to nothing lead. The ball's to the line. Two wide outs right, one left wing back to the right. Single running back is Mose Phillips. Here comes the blitz. Here's the pass across the middle. Complete. Yanked down by Fleming, who makes the catch at the 20. He's at the 15. He's at the 10. He's at the 5. 4, 3, 2, 1. Give him 6. Touchdown, Big Island. And a goal line stand to end the first quarter. Quarterback is Foley. Man in motion back to the near side. Foley back to throw. Pass into the end zone is... What's the ruling? Incomplete. Incomplete. There were 24 unanswered points. Heath Schuler was named MVP. Shocking. He rushed for two touchdowns. Single running back behind the quarterback, Schuler. Schuler on the draw, keeps the ball at the 10. Gets to the outside. His trip runs through a tackle to the 5. 4, 3, 2, 1. Give me the sign. He did. Touchdown, Tennessee. Heath threw for two touchdowns. He was 18 of 23 for 245 yards. Pass complete. He gets it at the 40, breaks the tackle, 45 to the 50, on his feet to the 45, to the 40, to the 35, to the 30, to the 25, to the 20, to the 15, 10, 5. Is there a marker on the field? No. Give him six. Touchdown, Tennessee. The Volunteers go to Mose Phillips. And Mose Phillips rambles 69 yards for the TD. Ben, there were over 52,000 fans there in the uh, stadium. I was one of them, and I have to tell you, most were in orange. That doesn't surprise me. They're the best. They're the best. This will be Coker. Snap pass complete. Down to the 45, down to the 40, to the 35, to the 30, to the 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, all the way. Touchdown, Corey Fleming. Colquitt to Fleming. Now that day, the Vols threw for 293 yards. But it wasn't just the numbers that excited the fan base. It was the ideas on display. Ideas that gave hope for another new era of Tennessee football. Ideas demonstrated on that day when they threw long on first down, when they ran successfully from a one-back set, now, that's common today, wasn't back then. And when they used a five-receiver formation, it showed hope for a future, attractive to the recruits and exciting for the fans. As the clock is counting down, four, three, 
2-1. The football game is over. Tennessee has won the Hall of Fame game over Boston College. When the press suggested the Vols might be dominant for years to come, Fulmer shut it down. Quote, I don't want to put that kind of pressure on our young men or on the new coach, but I think we have a lot of reasons to be excited about the future. Now, speaking of the future and hope for what's to come, here we are, right at the dawning of a new era, the Josh Heupel era. What a setting it is. The fans are back. The pride of the Southland band is on the field. That's one thing we missed last year, having this great musical organization with us every game on the field. They are out there now. They put on their pregame show, and they'll culminate it with the greatest entrance in college football. They're now marching crisply into position. They will form a giant T that will run from the midfield stripe all the way into the north end zone. They have formed the T, the anticipation building, the excitement, and for the first time, Josh Heupel leads the Tennessee Volunteers running through the T at Neyland Stadium. After the 2020 COVID season, it seemed like everyone was ready to just watch football that night, including the wonderful sight for sore eyes, a packed student section, ready to see what Josh Heupel and the 2021 Vols could do against Bowling Green. It's a beautiful night, 73 degrees, could get down into the 60s, no chance of rain, it's time to play football. As Tennessee comes out in the traditional orange shirts, white pants, and orange hats with power tees on either side. Bowling Green comes out in orange pants, white jerseys, orange hats, and Tennessee will kick it off from right to left. Pat, good to have you in the booth. Exciting time for this team right now. Like with other eras mentioned in this podcast, this era offered new things too, and the return of a couple things after the weird 2020 COVID season. Traditions like running through the tee, tailgating, the vol walk were back after taking a year off. New traditions were debuted too. LED party lights debuted inside the stadium to infuse the game day atmosphere with energy, going back to Coach Dickey's comments about wow factor on television. Ben, there was also fireworks launched for the first time inside Neyland Stadium atop the press box, the east side skybox, and the north end zone. Previously, those fireworks were launched from across the river uh, during pregame and also after the scoring play. And they look great coming off the press box. No doubt. Outside the stadium, food trucks, beer gardens, concerts, giving fans plenty of reasons to enjoy the experience. There was also a cool debut on the Vol Network. Right? That's right. Uh, Pat Ryan stepped up to the mic to serve as Bob Kessling's analyst after uh, Tim Priest retired in the offseason. Great career for Mr. Priest. Yes. And there was a debut at Gate 21, too. Four new statues were unveiled. In a ceremony the morning of the game, Tennessee honored the aforementioned Lester McLean, the first African-American player at Tennessee, Flying Jackie Walker, the first African-American All-American at Tennessee. Condridge Holloway, the first African-American quarterback at Tennessee and in the SEC. And also T. Martin, the first African-American quarterback to win a national title. Ben, certainly that's a point of pride for us and a well-deserved honor for those four guys and their families. No question. And just like in 1964, 
The offense made a change too, and and maybe not so much in formation, but I would say certainly in style, in speed, and tempo. Definitely tempo, especially in that first quarter. Third down and short. Tennessee going quickly at the three yard line. Milton's going to keep it around the right side, gets close, and he's in for a Tennessee touchdown. Joe Milton faked it to Small and he rolled out right, stretched out that six foot five frame and got it over the goal line for Tennessee's first touchdown of the 2021 season. Milton back into the shotgun, gets the snap, gives it to Small and he powers into the checkerboards over left guard this time. And Jabari Small scores for Tennessee its second touchdown of the night. Drops to throw, being pressured, being sacked back at the 33 yard line. Pressure. Tyler Barron got back there and sacked him. I got to believe somebody talked to the offensive line at halftime. Handoff. No, Milton's going to keep it going around the left side. Breaks a tackle. He's going to run into the checkerboard. Milton around left end for a Tennessee touchdown. First down at the 19-yard line. Evans up the middle. Breaks a tackle. Gets to the five. To the checkerboard. Whoa. Touchdown. Tyon Evans right up the middle. For Tennessee's second touchdown this half, and the Volunteers now lead it 27 to 6. He's got good feet. I'm telling you, he's got good, quick feet. Fourth down and a long two. McDonald back to throw. Fires the ball, deflected at the line of scrimmage, and intercepted by Tennessee at the 25 yard line. Milton back to throw. Looks. Can't find anybody up, but now he's going to fire it for the end zone. That pass is going to be a jumping attempt and touchdown, oh. Tennessee. Jalen Hyatt. Check that. That was Cedric Tillman on the 40-yard catch. Joe Milt gunned that pass to the end zone. Cedric Tillman got back there. He was battling a defender for Bowling Green and somehow made a great adjustment on that ball. So, Tennessee kicks off 100 years at Neyland Stadium and the Josh Heupel era in good fashion tonight. The Volunteers have a very impressive win on opening night as they knock off Bowling Green. Final score from Neyland Stadium, Tennessee 38 and Bowling Green 6. Awesome day for Tennessee football. Uh, fans being back here, uh, our players getting a chance to experience fall walk, coaches too, uh, running through the tee, getting a chance to play in front of a great crowd tonight. Student section was phenomenal. Um, obviously uh, excited about the win. There's a lot of things that we can clean up and are going to need to clean up as we move forward. Uh, but this seventh month, seven month journey, I uh, don't take anything for granted. Proud of what our kids have done. Enjoy it tonight, and then uh, we'll come back and get a whole lot better. Josh Heupel's postgame remarks makes you feel good about a new era of Tennessee football. And we'll update this show to tell you about the next coach at Tennessee after Coach Heupel's 20-year tenure marked by championships too numerous to count. Thanks for listening to A Host of Volunteers. A Host of Volunteers is hosted by Ben Bates. It's written and produced by Barry Rice. Archives are provided by the Vol Network and VFL Films. Sound design and technical support is Paul Jones and Arlation Music. And finally, and most importantly, thanks to the Letterman's Club and Chris Wampler and all the players. Without them, there'd be no show. So thank you to all the legends.
Until we meet again, thank you and good afternoon.